morning, Bridges family. Just so grateful I don't live on a hillside right now after seeing that. Um, and if you do or you're on the base of one, I'm thinking about uh, some of you who live right at the base. <laughs> don't freak out, okay? The, um, it's a word picture, right? And it's about this fantastic book study we're about to jump into. We're going to invite you to um, wholeheartedly dig into one of the greatest prophetic books ever written. It's found in the Old Testament. It's a book that's rich and compelling and is filled with timeless truth and, and hope. It's got great messages of hope in it. Its author, the prophet Isaiah, was one of the most influential men in the Old Testament history. And as we study the book, I'm sure you'll discover some of the reasons why. Now, if you don't know a whole lot about Isaiah, Isaiah was born in 765 B.C., And if tradition is correct, he was the nephew of King Amaziah and the cousin of King Uzziah, which gave him ready access to the leaders of the day in Israel and in Judah. He was a man of towering and lasting spiritual influence. Isaiah was a statesman and a historian and a prophet and a poet and a reformer. And most significantly, he was a man who loved the Lord and He went through amazing seasons in the course of history and was faithful through the course of it, through a course of lifetime of challenges. His public ministry lasted over 60 years, which is only rivaled in the Old Testament by Daniel. And according to Jewish and Christian tradition, Isaiah spoke faithfully the word of God through all kinds of ups and downs in the history specifically of Judah, and targeted his message to Jerusalem until the days of the rise of the evil king of Judah, Manasseh. Manasseh, attempting to gain power and to diminish the prophets of God, captured Isaiah, and he forced him into a log, and he sawed him in half, killing him. But the martyrdom of Isaiah sparked change eventually. And it just propelled the message that Isaiah had been speaking and writing out. On a personal note, Isaiah was married and had two sons, which if you read through the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to encourage you to do that in the next five weeks, you'll discover them on the pages. And um, as you read through it, some of you will be intimidated when me asking you to take five weeks and read through Isaiah because it's a longer book. If you just read a couple chapters a day, you'll be able to Go right through it, and it'll be, I think, really stimulating, encouraging, challenging to your faith walk. So uh, his name, Isaiah, means the Lord saves. And it's a very appropriate name because as you read through the book of Isaiah, you're going to discover that great theme woven throughout most of the chapters. And for some of you who love the book of Isaiah, you're Old Testament scholars, and you've read through the book, um, probably the passages that come to mind immediately when I say Isaiah are those passages that speak of salvation, specifically that point thousands of years ahead to Jesus and to our salvation. Those chapters like Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9 and 52 and 53, which are such great texts, messianic passages. Isaiah began his public ministry in a season of great prosperity, both in Israel under Jeroboam II and in Judah specifically in the last days of King Uzziah. If you 
know the book a little bit, probably the most arresting passage is found in Isaiah chapter 6, that is personal passage, where Isaiah comes face to face with a holy God and is completely undone, humbled, and, uh, and then the Lord atones for his sin and calls him out to ministry. And in the context of that call, the Lord saved him and gave him a ministry to go forward. And the very beginning of that passage in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, and in the days that King Uzziah died. So we know that that's where his ministry began during those years, Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years. His ministry took place under the kings, the Judah kings, Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And he was a contemporary of some of the Old Testament prophets you might have read. Amos and Hosea and Michael, who all shared this passion to call people, God's people, back to authentic faith. To connect the dots between the way that they talked about God and the way that they lived out their life throughout the week. The way they became people that reflected the heart of God. And Micah, the youngest of those prophets, captures it. In that phrase, many of you are familiar with the verse, Micah 6, 8, that says, What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. That's the message of Amos, Amos chapter 5. And to love mercy. That's the message of Hosea, Hosea chapter 6. And to walk humbly with your God. And that's the message of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29. This theme gets at the heart of what we're going to discover together this morning. So think for a moment about all the things a man like this would have walked through and would have discovered over the course of 60 years of kings, some of them that attempted to walk with God, some of them that were far away from God, when he kept by God being given a message to speak out that was unpopular and challenging and yet hopeful and directive. Think about the maturity process that happened inside of this man. He writes... As he writes his book, he uses a, a, a familiar name, a name, um, his favorite name for God, 26 times in the book. It's the Holy One of Israel. And again, if you capture the very beginning of his message, his ministry, Isaiah chapter 6, he comes face to face with this high and holy God. And then as God reveals his plan to him and he keeps seeing and understanding, discovering more about God, he keeps discovering how high and holy and majestic and pure God is. He was a man, I think, captured and enraptured by the holiness and salvation of God, which is a good place to be, isn't it? As I've mentioned, there are really those two dominant motifs in the book, the holiness of God and the salvation of the Lord. And as with every prophet, when they take themes that are close to their heart, they're going to call us back, call God's people back to serve him wholeheartedly and to leave behind the things that are messed up. Leave behind the things that keep our heart from God, the things that erode the fire of our faith and damage the impact of our faith. So that's why we're talking about these things in this series. We're going to take five themes as we go through the book, and we're going to think about Isaiah as he weaves these themes out through his book and how they impact the fire of our faith how they can erode our faith. And my great desire is that you would hear the voice of God through this series, through the inspired words of Isaiah, and that you think about those things that can erode and impact your faith. 
And as we begin, I want you to begin in chapter 1. So turn your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to take a few verses, 15 through 20, in Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to spend the majority of our time on one chapter that, that digs into it deeper, um, Isaiah chapter 58. But listen to the words of the Lord found here in the very beginning of Isaiah's book, Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It's the imagery of a person praying out to God and God not listening. Ever felt that? Because their hands are full of blood, he says. Wash yourself and make yourself clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. From before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, one of the things I love about this book is that the author is a great poet. He uses poetic language, vivid imagery, and he's also prophetic in his delivery. It's sometimes difficult to hear, right? But he also is piercing in the way that he doesn't pull punches, and he gets after the things that God's people wrestle with, that I wrestle with, that you wrestle with. Isaiah uses this word picture in chapter 1. It's the setting of us in court. And these people come to court believing that they're innocent. And the word picture as they come to the court seeking to defend themselves and are innocent is that they have blood on their hands. It's a graphic image, isn't it? That they are guilty. They're guilty of a disconnect. They've disconnected this set of spiritual activities that they're doing from their life, from the way they live out their faith. It's not making a difference in the way that they approach their relationships with other people, the way that they treat people and live throughout the week. But here's great news before we get all the convicting stuff, right? Great news is that Isaiah, from the very beginning of his book, gives hope. He says, yeah, you are guilty, but though your sins be as scarlet, though you've got blood on your hands, they can be clean. I'll wash you whiter than snow. Now, many of you have heard that text before, heard that phrase before, and it happens right here, addressing people who are playing church and God getting after them and yet offering them hope. Listen, when we talk about these themes, we're not going to talk about your guilt and your shame and try to motivate you that way. But really, the scriptures motivate us through hope, through this great, steady hope that we can have in the salvation of the Lord. And isn't it good to know that the heart of the gospel that we proclaim here, the good news that we proclaim here at Bridges, is that because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, we can be saved. We can be rescued from our guilt. And we can be clean. We can walk out of here 
cleanse, as white as snow. And that's the great truth of Scripture, has been, always will be. So though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they can become like wool because God is great and forgiving and cleansing me of all my failure and sin. Quoting Isaiah 29, 13, Jesus offers a rebuke that's similar to Isaiah's. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men, Matthew chapter 15. They're still doing it. They're still entering into activity that looks religious, but their heart's a long ways away. Have you ever found yourself in that space? I have. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to, uh, to do the pattern of things that we believe will please God and then wonder, why, why am I not feeling the presence of God in my life? Why am I struggling with my prayer life or, or the, the feeling that he's absent? Because I've become disconnected from his heart because I'm not actually living out what I'm calling out for. I'm using prayer for all the wrong reason. Jesus raising this reoccurring theme that's found here in Isaiah 1 and weaves itself out throughout his book. It's also found in the other prophets. Jeremiah chapter 7 speaks to it. And Micah, or excuse me, Amos chapter 6 and Hosea chapter 6. The biblical theme underscores a question I want you to grapple with. Is it possible to live disconnected and please God? The answer is... It's not, right? That seems fairly obvious. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Let me phrase it a different way. How is my faith translating to action that delights God? God saved those of you who have placed your faith in him and the salvation we find on the cross for a purpose. It's to engage his heart in action, to actually live it out. And that's Isaiah's great call to us, that it would translate to us. Is what I'm doing with my faith really a humble response to God's grace? Or is it a self-centered effort to curry God's favor and make me look good in front of others? Because that's a disconnected faith. That's a false faith. What is my faith, Isaiah asks, doing for others? This theme is addressed in depth in chapter 58, so I want you to turn there if you would. And although this passage is a little bit long, I'm going I'm to challenge you like I did. I challenged the first service. I'm, we're going to read it together. We're just, as you read, I want you to invite the Lord to speak strongly to your spirit. This is such a great message. Isaiah 58 has just 14 verses. I know you can keep your attention span and we can all read it together. As you read it, read it as you're encouraging the person next to you with the word of God. So if you would stand, please. And we're going to read together Isaiah 58. They'll be up on the screen here. There's Bibles provided in front of you. Perhaps you have it on your phone. We're in the ESV. Ready? Verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily... And delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. 
They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble themselves? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bounds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and i will and i will feed you with the heritage of jacob your father for the mouth of the lord has spoken this is the word of the lord you may be seated what a powerful chapter in scripture isn't it and by the way for some of you that's um that's not like your full week's requirement of scripture, okay? You might have thought, wow, okay, so now I read the word and I don't have to get into it again. I'm great. Good to go. Um, hopefully, it's just what's the appetite, right? To stick your head in the word and hear God's speaking out to you. In the Old Testament, Jews were commanded to observe only one fast per year, one fast day. It came on their most holy of days, the Day of Atonement, which Orthodox Jews just celebrated a couple weeks ago. And it celebrated the sacrifice of God to bring us healing and salvation, redemption. Jews were permitted to fast personally at other times. 
And somehow that permission devolved into a contest among the Jews of God's people to gain his attention and gain the esteem of others. It's like, hey, who can sing the loudest in our worship time? Or who can pray the most flowery prayer in our life group? Or whatever other thing that might happen that we dive ourselves into and pat ourselves over the back for. But it was wrong. It was disconnected. When they engaged in these acts, they, as Scripture says, they felt the absence of God and wondered, how come you're not answering our prayer? How come you're not, we're not sensing your presence? What's going on here? What, why, aren't you, like, why aren't you operating the way that we need you to operate right now? And then they had the temerity to complain to the Lord that they hadn't been seen or noticed in their fasting. The problem, according to Isaiah, was that they had been playing church, or better in the Old Testament, they had been playing temple, right? The problem was they had not connected the dots. They were praying to get things and fasting to get things from God, and they weren't getting from God what they anticipated because they had trusted in empty ritual apart from spiritual reality. So easy to do, right? Now, that doesn't mean the tools of spiritual discipline are empty. They can be powerful and compelling and helpful to my spiritual growth and help me draw near to God. But if it's disconnected from the spiritual reality, if I don't have integrity, then something's wrong with that. So, because many of us aren't familiar with biblical fasting, let me take just a moment to explain what's happening here. Describe its roots so you can fully understand what Isaiah is speaking into. Fasting in the Old Testament normally lasted from sunrise until sunset. And it was undertaken for a variety of reasons. First, to express grief for Samuel, chapter 31. To demonstrate a person's seriousness in their prayer life in Ezra, chapter 8. To indicate repentance book of Jonah, chapter 3, speaks to this. And to honor the solemnity of the Day of Atonement, that's a command from Leviticus chapter 16. Later generations added commemorative days to the religious calendar, and they remembered them by fasting, were described in Zechariah chapter 8. And in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees fasted, and they were really religious. They fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, Luke chapter 18 describes for us. And Jesus condemns putting fasting on display to impress others, but he never denigrated the practice. In fact, he practiced it himself. And if you remember, he fasted for 40 days at the very beginning of his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. Isaiah's point is that fasting as an expression of piety is a far less concern to God than a God-honoring lifestyle. The religious activities that I can step into, they're not about impressing God. What he wants from me is a God-honoring lifestyle, a lifestyle that's connected to his heart for people, that's lived out in my faith each day. There has to be alignment. Specifically, Isaiah teaches that true spirituality comes out of a humble walk with God that manifests itself by loving, a loving quality of our personal relationships. That's Isaiah 58.4. And by our commitment to social justice and helping the poor and the oppressed. That's verses 6 through 7. And by refraining from blaming or denigrating others. Verse 9. The answer according to Isaiah 58 isn't to stop fasting, but to get right with God. And to make your fasting more than a superficial exercise to try to gain God's pleasure when you're not really pleasing him. As Jesus said to people, 
his people about empty religious rituals. These you ought to have done, but without leaving the others undone, Matthew chapter 23, which is actually a lot harder to do, isn't it? It's, it's a lot easier for me just to step in on a Sunday morning and sing a song and like, okay, good to go. It's a lot more difficult to live out the words found in verses 6 and 7. Let me re- repeat those words again, just so we get them close to our heart. It's not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That's hard. That's That's a lot more difficult and, in fact, compels us to the place where we have to depend on God and his spirit working through. But there's hope. There's hope because God is fully capable of doing this with you and doing this with me and changing me so that my life would have integrity, so that I would step into his plan. Isaiah is teaching us the fasting acceptable to God is a daily fast from domination, from blaming others, from evil speech, from self-satisfaction and entitlement and blindness to one's privilege. The fast that God speaks to calls for vigilance, for justice and generosity every day. And that's just way more challenging and brings us to a place of reliance on God's spirit. But you know what? There's hope. He can make you like this because God is in the business of making his people to be in alignment with his heart, and to live in obedience. Isaiah is prodding us to reconsider our spiritual habits. You know, we love to think about the Emmanuel side of things, and Isaiah is going to speak to that. Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is coming, by the way, right? Thanksgiving, you already see some shops. We love to think about that, that God is with us. But it's a little more difficult to think about the flip side of that. Us with God. How do, we adjoin, how do we join his agenda for our lives? That's the question. How do we step into his purposes? How do we live a life that brings delight to him, not just one act? How are the good spiritual disciplines I'm practicing moving me to love those who need the touch of God? We, like the Jews of Israel, Isaiah's day, they're prone to think about these things, that Proximity to things that we think of as holy, church, worship expressions, Bible studies, communion, baptism, godly people, that that makes us holy. And that, of course, is idolatry. The only proximity that matters is our drawing near to God and his drawing near to us. Let me repeat that again so you might live in this truth. The only proximity that matters is us drawing near to God and his drawing near to us. And Isaiah points out that that's realized when we live life in faithfulness to God's heart through obedience to actually loving people. Which leads me to the blessing part of this chapter, which actually I love. It's found in verse 9. Chapter 58, verse 9 says, Then you shall call. And the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. 
Isn't that what all of us want? Right? For us to be in conversation with God and know that he's not distant. He is present with us. Not only that, but he's like, I'm here right with you this moment, through this challenge of your life, through this difficulty, through this unknown. Here I am. And the cool part about it is Isaiah actually writes this from a position of knowing it. He writes these words in chapter 58, right toward the end of his ministry. So he had seen this. It's an echo, actually, of his voice, his conversation in chapter 6 at the beginning of his ministry when he's humbled and then God calls him out, redeems him, calls him to a ministry, and he says, here I am. But he's heard that echo about God's voice in his life all these 60 years. Yeah, Isaiah, in this moment, when it seems that everyone's going a different direction, here I am, and I will always be here with you. It's a great promise. It happens precisely when I connect. When I connect the exterior, outward expressions of my faith, like worship and prayer, which are all necessary and important, to activity, to actually living out the compassion of God in my world. strikes me deeply that Isaiah knew the truth of what delighted God. And so he expresses it here in chapter 58. It's a life that has alignment. And that addresses the erosion, the things that can erode my faith and keep me away from God. It's out of this place where we experience his presence that God blesses us to both be satisfied in him and to accomplish things for his kingdom. Isaiah continues and says, If you pour yourself out, verse 10, for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That's your identity. You'll be called by others, by those titles, because God is bringing refreshment to you as you connect things, as you step into his heart for your life, his purposes for your life. He will bring refreshment. And it's worth noting that you can't build anything for God's kingdom on the foundation of a superficial walk with God. It's a walk that's connected. He uses a second illustration. So fasting is his first illustration. And his second illustration found in this chapter is one of the Sabbath. Their faith had gone sideways. And so Isaiah addresses the Jews' activity on the Sabbath, which was the most exterior expression, regular expression, of religious activity for them. But they were just putting on a religious show, apparently. Now, let me say a word about the Sabbath because sometimes there's confusion about that amongst God's people. In the New Testament, it makes it clear that Christians are not under the obligation to observe the Sabbath day. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. Galatians chapter 4, 9 through 11. Because Jesus fulfills the purpose And the plan of the Sabbath for us and in us. That's Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath commanded here and observed by Israel was a shadow of things to come. 
But the substance is of Christ, according to Colossians chapter 2. We have a rest in Jesus that's ours to enjoy every day this week. Isn't that good news? Therefore, since the shadow of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus, we're free to keep any day or no day as a Sabbath after the custom of ancient Israel. However, though we are free from the legal obligation of the Sabbath, we should not, in fact, we dare not ignore the obligation of a day of rest because God built us for one. He created us to imitate him in the pattern of having downtime so that we might reflect, so that we might pray, so we might intentionally draw near to him. Just as was the situation with our fasting, Isaiah takes issue with their disconnect between practice and heart. It was eroding their faith and was leaving people who needed the care and touch of God wounded. He wants our lives, and in return, he seeks to bring blessing, the blessing of stepping into obedience. So with this in mind, I want to encourage you this week, as you start each day, to pray a prayer. Put it in your own words. I've included an example prayer for you. And I'm going to pray this out right now with us. Put it in your heart this week to be praying out this. Pray with me. Lord, I honestly, I just want to live in such a way that brings you delight. I want to live for the things that are closest to your heart. And it's true, Lord, living out a sacrificial compassion is hard for me. And I need your help. I don't want my faith to be filled with empty ritual, but be filled with you. So teach me. Teach me to follow you and to bring pleasure to you better each day this week. And as I do, make my life become like a well-watered garden. In the holy and powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you came this morning and you have yet discovered what life is like living for the Lord. If you haven't discovered what it means to be clean, to walk in guilty and to leave with the knowledge that God has forgiven you, you can this morning. There'll be people right afterwards who would love to pray with you, but you can simply in your heart place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and tell him you need forgiveness and he will cleanse you from all, scripture says, unrighteousness. There'll be no guilt or shame. You can live for him fully and live to be a person who connects. And if you're a follower of him this week, let's live our lives in alignment so that every day would be an expression of God's love pouring out in us. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.